Hi, this is Alicia from Washington State, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content the most accurate download stats, so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up, and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get to today's show. But just one more thing before we do. I want to take a moment to thank everyone for their continued support of California Dreaming on Patreon. Over the past couple of months, we've had many new subscribers who have generously pledged their support for the production of our show, and I'm so very grateful for each and every one of you. And if you haven't received a card from me yet, hopefully I will be able to make my way to the post office by this weekend. I'd like to thank Randy for increasing his pledge this week. And also, Sean R. and Beth M. for their recent subscriptions to Patreon. The latest bonus episode is available, and in the vein of tragic building fires, we visited the state of Rhode Island for a vacation series bonus, this time discussing the station nightclub fire. So make sure you take a listen to that if you're subscribed, and it's available to patrons at all levels. And I always seem to neglect to remind you that if you don't want to join Patreon, but you would like to make a one-off donation through PayPal, you can do so using our email at californiapod at gmail.com. That's spelled K-I-L-L-A-F-O-R-N-I-A-P-O-D at gmail. Again, thank you all for your support. After I told the story of the dating game killer, Rodney Alcala, in the collaboration episode with Kate from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast, I got several messages about other notorious game show guests, which is pretty creepy when you think about it. And many of those game show episodes are pretty old, as I do think that there is somewhat of a screening process now for those types of shows. As we ushered in the 90s, a new kind of television show hit big on MTV. It was called The Real World. To be honest with you, I never watched the show. It aired from 1992 to 2013, and I'm hearing there have been recent talks of reviving the series. But it was a reality show which was inspired by the 1973 documentary series called An American Family, which was filmed from May 30th through December 31st, 1971, but aired on PBS from January 11th to March 29th, 1973. 
and it is considered to be the first reality series on American television. Now dreamers, every time I say something like that, I get messages about how I'm wrong and it was really this or that show that was really the first reality show. So if I'm wrong, go ahead and hit me with it if you like, but this is just what my research uncovered. The show was originally intended to follow the daily life of the Loud family, who were an upper middle class family living in Santa Barbara, California. But what ended up happening was it chronicled the breakup and ultimately the divorce of the parents, Bill and Pat Loud. So the BBC followed up with a similar series of its own in 1974 called The Family, which chronicled the working class Wilkins family who lived in Reading, Berkshire, England. And I hope I pronounced that correctly. Berkshire. Is that right? I think that's right. So the real world ended up being the longest running program on MTV ever, as well as one of the longest running reality shows ever. And it is often thought of as the genesis of modern reality TV. The idea behind the show was to choose seven or eight young adults who were chosen by the show's producers, and they were placed together to live temporarily in a new city in one place of residence. All the while, they were being filmed nonstop. Now, like I said, I did not watch the show. I graduated from high school the year this show was launched. I started college and I started working and I just wasn't watching all that much TV from the mid to late 90s. Then I had a kid in 1999 and life as I knew it was over and it would all be kiddie TV for the next decade and a half at least. So... I never really watched these types of shows. I will say that I did for one season become invested in The Rock of Love with Brett Michaels. I did watch some American Idol for a minute and some Dancing with the Stars for a few seasons. But to be honest, I don't know how much distinction there is between reality shows and competition shows or if they're all just lumped together. But reality TV whether it's following the lives around of a particularly unique family or a competition show like America's Next Top Model or The Bachelor or whatever your definition of a reality show is, it draws big audiences. Though we've come to find a lot of this reality stuff is actually scripted. I've recently read a couple of articles online about some specific shows that stage some of the drama that viewers end up seeing broadcasted when the show finally airs, and much of it isn't reality at all. I also recently saw an article on Ranker.com that discussed about a dozen behind-the-scenes horror stories involving a variety of reality television show productions. I wanted to quickly run down each of them, because one of them, of course, was a big case right here in Southern California. And we will get to that. And I do have somewhat of a personal connection to the story as well. But let's briefly talk about the other horror stories I read about. In 2013, on a season of the French version of Survivor called Koh Lanta, a contestant died on the very first day of filming, leading to a cancellation of the entire season. 25-year-old Gerald Babin 
went into cardiac arrest after jumping from a boat followed up with a tug-of-war competition. After the tug-of-war, he experienced painful arm cramps and was taken by emergency services to a nearby hospital. On the way there, he went into full cardiac arrest and died before arriving at the hospital. But that's not all. The doctor who was on the set, in charge of supervising the contestants, committed suicide following Gerard Babin's death. Again in France, in March of 2015, two pilots, five crew members, and three very well-known French athletes who were set to star in a new reality TV program called Dropped died in a mid-air collision in the skies above Argentina. Investigators eventually determined that the crash was a result of pilot error after they both failed to accurately determine the distance between their two helicopters, causing them to fly too closely to one another. The idea of the show was to drop celebrities in rough, hostile environments, leaving them there to fend for themselves. The show was canceled in the wake of the crash. The Discovery Channel has some military-themed shows that have resulted in a number of deaths. Four people in total have died while filming. In 2012, while filming at a rifle range in Colorado Springs, two smoke bombs detonated without any kind of warning and were sent flying through the air at approximately 150 miles or 93 kilometers per hour. At least one, possibly both, I wasn't clear on this, struck and killed a bystander named Terry Flannel. The producers of the show were going to use them in order to create a fog-like scene when they suddenly began to flare up on their own. Terry's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit, but it seems as though it was dismissed. And the three other deaths occurred in 2013 while filming a yet-to-be-titled show in Los Angeles when their helicopter crashed. The crash happened around 3.30 in the morning during filming in the Angeles National Forest. The National Transportation Safety Board came to the determination that it was most likely caused by the pilot's line of vision being obstructed by the camera operator's key light. On the MTV reality show called Buck Wild, the premise of it was to follow nine people who lived their lives in the hills of West Virginia. The show was in its sophomore season after a very successful run in season one when production came to a stop when the star of Buck Wild, Shane Gandy, was discovered dead with two others inside his vehicle. Apparently, the three had left a bar on a Saturday night to go four-wheeling when their Ford Bronco became stuck in a mud pit. The mud ended up clogging up the car's muffler, causing the vehicle to fill with carbon monoxide gas, killing all three inside. The show was immediately canceled. The article next pointed out that there have been a number of former reality show contestants that have committed suicide. In 2010, season five of The Bachelorette contestant Julian Hug took his own life as well as season 14 of The Bachelor, Gia Alamand in 2013, and Lex McAllister in 2016, both also committed suicide. And according to an article in the New York Post, in the span of about 10 years, at least 21 former reality TV actors and or contestants died by suicide from shows including Kitchen Nightmares, Storage Wars, and The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I looked a little further into this, and apparently people simply aren't prepared 
for being propelled into the public eye, and they aren't really emotionally or mentally prepared for everything that goes along with it, and that includes all the haters and the prying into their personal lives. They tend to get assigned these roles in shows, like they're the one who is promiscuous, or they're labeled the one who drinks a lot, or they're made out to be like a bully, and that isn't exactly what they were expecting when they signed on, but that's what brought in all the ratings. Though these shows are said to do extensive background, physical, and psychological screenings, some would say potential participants aren't screened as well as they should be but I suppose it all depends on who you're talking to. One show specifically that has been faced with a lot of controversy has been The Biggest Loser. Anything from those who watch the show feeling as though that trainers go too hard on the contestants to the things that they're allowed to eat of being a great concern to health critics, that coupled with the fact that many of these competing go from a lifestyle that is largely inactive to suddenly being put through some very rigorous exercise. And this could cause a number of problems very quickly for the health and well-being of those in the competition. Over the years, various contestants have said that they were made to starve themselves for the show. They've ended up seeing blood in their urine. They're eating baby food. They would wrap themselves in plastic suits to sweat. They would sit in the sauna for hours every day. They would stop eating and drinking. And they would work out for more than four hours a day. Some would pass out from the ordeal. Others have said their hair fell out. Women have said they've stopped menstruating. They were fat shamed. And some have claimed that they were cut off from communicating with their families. The article next discussed The Price is Right, which is more of a game show than a reality show, but it included it in their list of problematic shows. Numerous reports over the years have alleged misconduct, including emotional distress, employer retaliation, and discrimination. Several people who work for the show, a handful of spokesmodels, the former director, as well as a pair of production assistants, all claim that they were regularly threatened with being fired or were wrongfully terminated as it related to alleged sexual harassment by former host Bob Barker. Honestly, It could be an episode on its own, to tell you the truth, dreamers, which I may do because there are indeed several accusations against Barker, more than I really have time to talk about today. Some settlements were reached, while other cases were tossed out. Like I said, maybe we can discuss it in a bonus sometime in the future. The next scandal took place in 2014, when TLC canceled its show Here Comes Honey Boo Boo, when it discovered that Honey Boo Boo's mom, June, was dating Mark McDaniel, an ex-boyfriend of hers, as well as a convicted sex offender, specifically child sexual abuse. I have read some of the details, and they're really much more than I want to get into. They're somewhat graphic, but I will say his conviction dates back to 2004 and involved the aggravated sexual abuse of an 8-year-old girl. It was later confirmed that it was June Shannon's eldest daughter that was abused by McDaniel. She denied that she was dating him when the rumor surfaced, but the show was canceled nonetheless. In 2014, a contestant from America's Next Top Model filed a lawsuit against the show's network and producers accusing them of violating labor laws, 
and emotional distress, as well as for breach of contract when her winnings were not given to her, and then she was subsequently disqualified for having worked as an escort in the past. She also alleged that she was not provided with meals, breaks, minimum wage, or medical care when she had an anxiety attack on the show, claiming that the breakdown would make for good TV according to the show's producers. I could not find anything indicating how the lawsuit played out. However, I did find an article in the New York Post that said she quote unquote attempted to sue for $3 million. So that leads me to think that she was unsuccessful. Another TLC show, Toddlers and Tiaras, which is about child beauty pageants and the lengths that parents would go to to win. And sometimes it seems that they took things too far. For example, very young girls had fake teeth, hair extensions, and wigs, and they were even made to perform dances and routines that were way age inappropriate. Then in 2011, things seemed to go really over the top when one mom dressed her three-year-old in that outfit Julia Roberts wore in Pretty Woman, which was way over-sexualized for a toddler, obviously. But the mom defended her outfit of choice as something funny that kids really wouldn't get what's so funny about it, like adult humor that goes over their heads. It's another show that I don't or didn't watch, and I have no idea if it's still on the air, but I don't really see the humor in that myself, but whatever. There is a reason why I don't watch shows like that or any of these really, pretty much because of Investigation Discovery. I stayed on that channel most of the time. And the two out of the three last examples of questionable reality television are kind of disgusting in a yucky, gross kind of way. One had to do with the MTV show Teen Mom and one of the young mothers allowing for really squalid conditions in her home. Just really nasty and allowing her kids to eat off the floor. And the other had to do with the show Fear Factor, making contestants drink donkey fluids. And I just really don't want to talk about it. You can go ahead and look all this stuff up for yourself. I will try to post a link on social media or in the show notes for you if you have to know. So the final story to make this list is the one that we are going to talk about here today. It is the story of two people who had stars in their eyes. They were both looking for fame and fortune and looking to find it in reality TV stardom, both of them relying on their good looks to take them far. Their paths would cross and they quickly found themselves all in, having married only hours after meeting. And not that quickie marriages are necessarily doomed from the start, but this one certainly was. In today's 65th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Jasmine Fiore. Back in the summer of 2010, when my daughter was about to turn 11, I decided it was time to get her involved in some kind of sports. For the first 10 years of her life, I just didn't really have the time to commit to it, but it was something I had been wanting to do for a long time. So we tried soccer first, which she didn't really care for, 
but she liked being on a team and she liked the friends that she made and they would eventually go on that summer to come in first place which was pretty cool for her considering it was her first time participating in a team sport. Even PE in elementary school was very limited due to all the cuts in certain programs that had been made over the years. So anyway, her coach, his name was Frank. He was a really nice coach. Again, lucky for her first time out. His son was on the team, and coach and I got to talking one day while at practice, and he mentioned that he was a detective in the Buena Park Police Department. Buena Park is just about one city over, in the most western part of Orange County, and it is probably most famous for being the home of Knott's Berry Farm. So I don't know what I said when he told me he was a detective, but you know my true crime junkie antenna most likely began to ping. And then he asked me if I'd ever heard of Jasmine Fiore. I was like, well, duh, yeah, I totally know that case. He said that it was his most notable case that he's ever worked on. Of course, I knew exactly what he was talking about. I knew what happened, and I knew many of the details of the case, as at this point it had been less than a year that the whole thing had gone down. The next thing he talked about was how coaching and soccer was his therapy. And knowing what I knew about Jasmine's story, I could easily see anyone close to this case needing help coping with some of the things that they've seen. I was very grateful for him opening up about his experience and why he needed to come to the soccer field every day after work. Because cops... They see some stuff, dreamers. Stuff that could give the most hardened detectives nightmares. And just the fact that he brought it up in the same sentence as explaining that coaching was his therapy, I could almost feel the weight of the things that he saw when he was assigned to Jasmine's case. As I researched the story, Coach Frank's name popped up several times in many of the articles written about Jasmine but he would be formally known as Detective Frank Nunez anytime he was interviewed or quoted. But let's back up a little bit, though. Let's pick this story up from where it all began. Jasmine Fiore was born Jasmine Lepore on February 18, 1981, in Santa Cruz, California, specifically in the town of Bonnie Dune. I had never heard of Bonnie Doon, so my first inclination was to think it was a very small town, which it is. It is a census-designated place in Santa Cruz County, founded in 1850 as a logging camp located south of the San Francisco Bay Area and north of the Monterey Bay Area. And at the last census, its population was 2,678. It has no city center, no shopping, and there are some wineries, a church, an elementary school, a couple of fire stations, an ecological reserve, a lavender farm, as well as the Bonnie Dune Beach. Jasmine's parents divorced when she was eight years old. 
So from then, she was raised solely by her mom, Lisa Lepore. As a youth, Jasmine was somewhat of a tomboy. She enjoyed playing football, she loved horseback riding, and eventually she got a job at a nearby market as a bag person. She had wildly flowing blonde hair, and when she would get out on the football field to play, she'd smear charcoal under her eyes. She'd pull all her hair back into a ponytail, and she would get out there and mix it up with the boys, and she held her own. People who knew her back in her hometown remembered how sweet and kind and friendly she was. She had a very special quality about her, and she was very sincere. Also in her spare time, Jasmine enjoyed sailing as well as riding motorcycles. But as she matured, she was blossoming into quite the stunning beauty. A career in modeling was beckoning, and the time was approaching where Jasmine was going to have to make a decision to leave behind the small town and head for the big city to pursue those aspirations. She left Bonnie Doon, her friend said, with a certain level of trepidation, some nervousness about a drastic move. She was wary of life in the big city, and from what I was able to find in the timeline of her life and her career, it seems as though Jasmine landed in Los Angeles, but also finding work both there and in Las Vegas. And Jasmine went through this metamorphosis, so to speak. I don't know how much cosmetic procedures Jasmine had done, but the only thing that I could confirm was she did have a breast augmentation done, and this would play a role in her story later. But to be honest, from the pictures that I've seen of Jasmine, I don't think that she needed to do much to change herself. She was always beautiful. She idolized Marilyn Monroe, and she aspired to that level of fame, fortune, and beauty. But once she hit Vegas, she definitely glammed up her hair, her makeup, her wardrobe, and her jewelry. And it probably wasn't that hard when you start off naturally pretty to begin with. She began finding work as a swimsuit model, and she also found work as a body painted model where she would be hired as entertainment for parties. She appeared in a number of Vegas shows. She modeled for restaurant ads. She also appeared in television commercials for adult phone lines. She dealt cards at the Playboy Club, and she did photo shoots for Playboy magazine, and she was a regular in the Las Vegas party scene. But not only was Jasmine a beautiful young woman, she did keep her head on straight. She earned her real estate license with aspirations to eventually work as an agent, but she also had plans to hopefully open up her own gym and personal training facility. But Jasmine quickly discovered that one way to come by some quick and easy money involved keeping the company of men, according to a good friend of hers from back home. Men, of course, were easily attracted to Jasmine. They chase after her. They throw money her way as they enjoyed the company of a beautiful woman on their arm whenever they would show up for social events or parties. 
So from around 2005 through 2006 and 2007, Jasmine was involved in a couple of long-term relationships. One with a gentleman by the name of Robert Hammond and the other named Travis Heinrich. Both relationships had their ups and downs. Both of them were kind of on again, off again. She was at different points very seriously involved with each of them. Robert, it seems, Jasmine wanted to settle down with eventually, but I am uncertain as to how or when that came to an end. She met Travis sometime in 2005, to whom she became engaged to, but it seems the engagement only lasted about six months. They broke off the engagement sometime either in 2006 or 2007. It's unclear. But as I said, both relationships were intermittent. From what I gathered from the information I read, if someone was close with Jasmine, even being engaged, even when there would be a breakup, the two would remain close, at least friends, sometimes still dating. Jasmine's relationships tended to linger, for lack of a better word. And then fast forward about two years. I assume having been living and working and enjoying life between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. On March 16, 2009, Jasmine would cross paths with a real estate investor named Ryan Jenkins at a Hawaiian tropics party at a Las Vegas casino. He had just wrapped filming the VH1 reality show called Megan Wants a Millionaire. Let's stop here and talk about this and who Ryan Jenkins is. Ryan Alexander Jenkins was born February 8, 1977. And from what I can find, it looks like he was born in Victoria, British Columbia. But he is often said to have come from Calgary, Alberta. The son of a prominent and wealthy architect, Dan Jenkins, His father also owned an exclusive multi-million dollar resort on the Honduran island of Rotan. The younger Jenkins was a bright kid with a private school education, having attended St. Michael's University School in British Columbia. He eventually became a Canadian real estate developer, supposedly carving his own path and earning his own wealth. But this would come into question later on. It seems as though he did work with or for his father. They worked together on condominium projects and according to the younger Jenkins resume, he was the president of a development company that he managed, market, and sold units for. And it also said that he designed as many as 55 units. However, I don't know how much of that was embellished to enhance his resume and how much of the work could actually be attributed to his father. His resume also said that he was a sales consultant for an investment firm with a specialization in commercial real estate and that he held a commercial pilot's license. And Jenkins had a proclivity for pretty blondes, apparently leaving a series of ex-girlfriends as he went along. So he had these good looks, And as I always have said, I have to point out that is all relative. If you remember, the ladies thought the dating game killer Rodney Alcala was a catch. So yeah, 
Eye of the Beholder, dreamers. Eye of the Beholder. So Jenkins was all right looking. He got some money. He was pretty flashy about it, too. But could it have all been just a show? Jenkins' way of throwing around money, supposedly, all the while, it's often been speculated as being just an act. Some smoke and mirrors, so to speak. We will revisit this question a little bit later. Jenkins left Canada searching for stardom. He was in Vegas doing, you guessed it, partying, when he caught the eye of some casting agents from Hollywood. He looked the part of what they were scouting for. He did tell them that he had aspirations of becoming an actor. And when he mentioned that he had a net worth of $2.5 million, they felt like they hit the jackpot. They just so happened to be casting for a new VH1 reality TV show entitled Megan Wants a Millionaire. The star was Megan Hauserman, who had been a former contestant on The Rock of Love, as well as three other reality TV show productions. She was also a former Playboy model, and this was her big chance to be the star of her own reality show. By February of 2009, filming had gotten underway, and the show was set to premiere on television later that same year, on August 2nd, 2009. The idea behind the show was born when Megan had made kind of an off-the-cuff comment on a follow-up show to The Rock of Love called The Rock of Love Charm School, where she had said something along the lines of that she would love to become a trophy wife. VH1 producers got the idea to form a new show around her and that idea, and the development of the show began from there. During the casting process, producers were looking for 17 single men with a net worth of at least $1 million. In an interview tape for the show, she said that she was seeking a mature guy that's able to handle her that isn't a crybaby. She also said that he doesn't have to be rich, but he has to be stable. But that doesn't make much sense to me, considering the title of the show is Megan Wants a Millionaire, which kind of sort of contradicts her statement that he doesn't have to be rich, but whatever. She did say that she was taking the show very seriously, living up to its label as a reality show. She would have a couple of her best friends join her to help her with the decisions when it came to the eliminations. Ryan Jenkins was cast for this show. And suddenly, he saw all of his dreams of becoming not only rich, but famous, were beginning to come to fruition. He was going to go from the great white north of Canada into this multi-million dollar industry of Hollywood glitz and glamour known as reality TV. And remember, when we opened this show, we talked about some of the pitfalls that come along with being on reality television. Your life is suddenly having a huge spotlight shined on it and everyone is going to know exactly who you are. But for this, for all intents and purposes, it's exactly what Jenkins wanted. He wanted the fame. 
He wanted the riches. He wanted the notoriety. And he wanted the prize. The pretty blonde on his arm. In this case, show contestant Megan Hauserman. But as we go along, you're going to find that it's not necessarily Ryan Jenkins that would be the one who would need to concern himself with the pitfalls of reality TV stardom. You see, Jenkins is one of those who was screened for the show, but somehow managed to slip through the cracks, as it would later be discovered that he did indeed have some troubling issues in his background. Back in Canada, in January of 2007, Jenkins had been sentenced to 15 months probation for an unspecified assault charge against an ex-girlfriend. In addition to probation, he was ordered to seek counseling for anger management and domestic violence, as well as issues related to sexual addiction. His attorney in the case later told the Associated Press that there was also a civil restraining order in place against Ryan Jenkins. So this makes me wonder, when those VH1 casting agents were looking for people for their new show, Megan Wants a Millionaire, spotted Ryan Jenkins. When they found out that he was single and rich, I wonder if they just took him at face value and put him through possibly somewhat of a cursory screening process. Because if they had indeed done a proper background check, these charges in Canada would have certainly come up. And then I wonder if it did and if they just overlooked it. Or maybe their access to the information was somewhat limited because they were charges stemming from another country. I don't know. We can only speculate at this point. But either way, whether producers were aware or not of this assault charge, Jenkins made the final cut among the 17 men vying to be chosen by Megan Hauserman. I don't exactly know how filming for the show progressed, but I am under the impression that it moved along relatively quickly. And when the show airs, the days that were filmed consecutively are spread out. I assume in episodes that air weekly on the network until the finale airs and the winner is chosen by Megan. And it is also my understanding that Jenkins did make the top three of the finalists, but ultimately he did not win the show. He came in third. I watched an interview with Megan some years after the show and investigation discovery, where she talked about her experience, as well as her impressions of Ryan Jenkins. And though she didn't have that strong initial impression of him, like the contestant on the dating game did of Rodney Alcala as soon as she laid eyes on the guy, Megan did slowly begin to realize that there was something not quite right with him. Touted as the smooth operator on the show, and from what I've seen in clips of him on it, that's pretty much the persona that he exuded. When Jenkins was introduced to Megan on the set of the show in front of the cameras, he was very confident about himself. He came off as really charming, and he had this air of arrogance about him, calling himself a little bit of a Prince Charming, 
and a little bit of a bad boy. But it seemed as though he wasn't just there on a whim. He wasn't flippant about his feelings of what it meant for him to be there. From all indications, this show was not only going to make or break him as a star he wanted to be, it seemed he wanted to win, not for the sake of winning, but he was definitely smitten with Megan Hauserman. When Megan first met him, she described him as super confident. He was pretty sure of himself and that he was going to make it through every elimination to win the show and, of course, pursue the relationship that he wanted with her. And she liked that about him. He seemed to have his life together, and he seemed sure about what he was doing and where he was going. He seemed driven and goal-oriented, and she liked that. She also thought he was pretty cute, and he had a great sense of humor, and he was a real charmer. As filming continued, Megan was drawn into the 31-year-old Jenkins. She liked what he was about, and their dates on the shows she really enjoyed. He told her that he was interested in getting married, and they wanted to settle down in Los Angeles and eventually raise a family. And in the beginning, she, like the show's producers, seemed to have done as well, she took Jenkins and his stories and his charm at face value. But it wasn't long before things began to look a little blurry, and Jenkins began circumventing the show itself and was contacting Megan over the internet. He would send her messages, talking about the time that they were spending together on the show, the more he felt like they could have a life together, insisting that they had chemistry, that a relationship could really work, that he was being completely real and honest on the show, asking her if she could see a future with him. And she found his messages and pursuit of her a bit off-putting, being that he had only known her for a few weeks. And not only that, they had only interacted with one another on camera in front of other people, other contestants, and, of course, television crews. And Ryan Jenkins was, in fact, an early favorite of Megan's. She openly stated in interviews that she did seriously consider choosing him. She did like him. She was charmed. But as time went on, and she got to know him a little bit better, she began to feel that the lines he was feeding her were largely disingenuous. And she began backing off her initial feelings about the possibility of choosing him. The two had a conversation that all but shifted her feelings about him. She began asking him about his millions of dollars. And I guess it's natural for this to come up, particularly when the entire reason that he's there on the show is because of money and she's looking for a millionaire. So when she asked, his smooth-talking demeanor suddenly shifted. He became vague and evasive. I don't know the exact nature of the conversation, but he began making excuses of where his money was, that it was in Canada, tied up in investments or whatever, and it was going to take time to convert the money to American currency. To her, 
whatever her line of questioning was. He had his answers and excuses for her, either at the ready, or he had been well-versed in spouting out these lines about his finances. And that was pretty much the turning point. Megan was beginning to feel like Jenkins wasn't all that he was presenting himself as. And I'm not being judgy about it at all. If she was able to land herself a millionaire, more power to her. But if a guy is lying about it, then she absolutely should have her guard up about it. Money or no money, nobody wants to be with a liar. It's simply never going to end well. As it was coming down to the wire, Megan and her girls were discussing those who were left in the running, Jenkins being one of them. She asked her friends what they thought of him, and they agreed that he was cute, but pointed out they felt like he was a player. That's what her friends were saying on the air, but behind the scenes, they were telling her that she can't believe a word that he's saying. And not only that, Megan began to notice that even Jenkins was having troubles keeping his stories straight, or his lies, as it were. And she would eventually find out that there were a number of times that he would tell her one story, and then he would tell other people different stories, and nothing was really adding up. Like I said, Jenkins did make the final three, and it was coming down to the finale. He didn't make it this far for no reason, as Megan did like him. But there was just that pesky intuition again that was gnawing at her. This was the show's finale. So Jenkins' dad had even made the trip down from Canada to Los Angeles to be there. And I'm thinking that Jenkins probably thinks that he's winning this. But Megan ended up cutting him from the show first out of the three that were left. She got the sense that he was embarrassed and felt somewhat humiliated, particularly with his dad there in the audience. I guess it was quite a blow to his ego, as well as somewhat of a setback when it came to the goals that he had in mind when he set his sights on becoming a part of reality TV and becoming a star. Harkening back to what we discussed at the beginning of the show, those who've examined this case have pointed out that at least four former reality TV show contestants have known to have committed suicide by the time Jenkins was eliminated from Megan Wants a Millionaire. And their suicides have been said to be directly linked to being eliminated from their respective shows. So a person with a volatile personality being eliminated in the manner in which Jenkins was in front of those that he was in competition with in front of his dad, in front of the cameras, and knowing that the world was going to be watching this, it could very well easily be a trigger, this rejection and losing. But it didn't manifest itself negatively in Jenkins right away. He was going to find a way to get past this. And where better to go than Sin City to forget your sorrows? and to pick up the pieces, and to try again. Ryan Jenkins would not be kept down for very long. Remember, I mentioned filming was going on in February of 2009, 
ending sometime in March, and the show was set to air in August. The timeline is very important when it comes to the events to follow. After filming wrapped for Megan Wants a Millionaire, Jenkins made his way to Vegas. He was there to party, a place where he had always had a good time, and he didn't have trouble meeting women. And nobody really needed to know that he was cut from the show, just that he had been on a show. He was going to downplay the fact that he lost and play up the fact that he was on TV. A fellow contestant on Megan Wants a Millionaire has said in interviews that when it comes to his experience with having been on the show and his interactions with women afterwards, it seems as though women were less guarded. They were excited by the fact that he had been on TV and they wanted to get to know him and they wanted to talk to him. And they liked telling their friends that they met this guy who was on this TV show. Now, I don't particularly care for the way that he lumped women into this category of being these giddy, starstruck fangirl types, as he made this sweeping generalization about it, but that's just how he put it. Adding that if Jenkins had game before being on TV, then being on TV gave him even more game. Anyway, Vegas was very much a place that Jenkins could reinvent himself much in the same ways that Jasmine had when she first set her sights on moving to the big city and becoming a model. It was at this Hawaiian tropics party at one of the Vegas Strip hotels that Jenkins had reserved his own cabana and he had a steady stream of alcohol flowing. I don't exactly know how down and out he was over getting cut from Megan Wants a Millionaire, but he seemed to be coping fairly well now that he's found himself in Vegas, but I don't doubt that it couldn't possibly feel good to be cut. These people put themselves out there for public consumption, and then they get the axe, and everybody else moves on. I don't watch a lot of reality TV, so I don't really think all that much about it, what life is like after reality. So anyway... Jenkins was in Vegas, and it would be here, at this Hawaiian Tropics shindig, that he would encounter Jasmine Fiore on March 16, 2009, just after wrapping filming. He was, of course, immediately taken with the beautiful blonde. She definitely turned heads. And I gather Megan Hauserman soon became Megan who? as he quickly moved in on Jasmine. And for her part, what we know about Jenkins up to this point, he was probably able to win her over very quickly with his charms and his lines and flashing his money, his apparent good looks. And now he had reality TV star added to his arsenal. And that's all it took. And Jasmine was sold. And within 48 hours' time, Jasmine and Jenkins were wed at the Little White Chapel on the Vegas Strip. Now, maybe I'm being judgy again, but that seems kind of fast from first meeting to the altar. However, in Vegas, this is not unheard of. 
The timing must have been just right for both Jenkins and Jasmine. She was single at the time. She wasn't with anyone when she met him at the Hawaiian Tropic Party. And Jenkins was bouncing back from his rejection on Megan Wants a Millionaire. If he had as much game as he is rumored to have had, and he was able to add TV star to his resume, and with whatever he did or said to Jasmine, she bought what he was selling because she agreed to marry the guy. And just like with Megan in the beginning, to Jasmine, he seemed very believable. Jenkins had the charm and the charisma and the good looks along with the wealth. And I'm thinking Jasmine thought everything that she had been searching for was right here. So why the heck not? And as far as Jenkins was concerned, all he needed to know about Jasmine was that she was beautiful. She had the sex appeal about her. She drove a very nice sports car. And she was the kind of woman that other men lusted after. He didn't need a lot of time to decide that that's what he wanted too. And I'm not sure we would be so far off the mark if we speculated that Jenkins, in a way, was looking to redeem himself from losing out on his chance with that other pretty blonde, Megan Hauserman. It is very likely that he may have been driven to not only land Jasmine as soon as he laid eyes on her, but to go so far as to marry her within two days' time because of the letdown of not winning Megan's heart. Like on some level, he needed to prove to himself that he could do this, that he could have the beautiful blonde trophy wife. His reasons may have been shallow and superficial for marrying Jasmine in such short order. Jasmine's reasons may have been as well, but her friends were actually puzzled by her decision. They didn't understand what it was she saw in Jenkins. But of course, they think highly of their friend. That she isn't going to make these transparent, superficial decisions. That she's got a better head on her shoulders than that. That she's going to make better, wiser choices. Not to mention the fact that they didn't feel like she was ready for marriage. But to me, not being ready for marriage doesn't mean much in the world that these two were living in. But I wouldn't put it past Jasmine to fall pretty hard and fast for a guy like Ryan Jenkins, especially if he was portraying himself as a wealthy real estate developer turned TV star. Even more so if he was embellishing his stories as well. They both wanted a wealthy lifestyle, and they were looking for fame on some levels and they were banking on their good looks to get them there. And it seems to have been the common thread between the two of them. So on the surface, to both Jenkins and Jasmine, it seemed like they were made for each other in a way. But like I said, that would only be on the surface. Jenkins wanted, if not needed, this marriage to appear to be the perfect union. And for a very short time, it seemed that it was. He began taking videos of the times that they were spending together and posting them on his MySpace page. He enjoyed showing Jasmine off and the lifestyle that they were indulging in. But it would be only one month into their brand new marriage 
that it became obvious that things were not as blissful as they seemed on MySpace. The couple were in attendance at a pool party that April of 2009. Both of them had had a good amount of drink, and Jasmine met this guy at this pool party named David, and before long, she was openly making out with him. One of her close friends is looking on, completely taken aback by what Jasmine is doing. She approached her and asked her, What the heck are you doing? And it was just about that same time that Jenkins took notice and made a beeline right over to his new wife. He kind of grabbed her by the shoulders and pushed her back very quickly, which kind of stunned her. And then Jenkins pushed her even harder, and she fell backwards right into the swimming pool. As a result of this, Jasmine went to the local police station and filed a report. Jenkins was arrested and ended up spending the next two days in jail. So things were going south pretty quickly for the couple, which, considering how quickly they were wed, only two days after meeting, may not seem like that much of a surprise. Now, I'm not one to say that any time this happens, it's doomed from the start, because I like a good love story, and anything is possible. But for these two, this is not turning out to be the makings of an epic love story, not in the least. And it quickly became apparent that if love wasn't the tie that bound these two, then it would definitely be convenience. Apparently, for Jenkins, his visa was about to expire, and in order to stay in the United States, he needed to get married pretty quickly. And for Jasmine, she was under the impression that Jenkins was loaded. Her friends have said that she told them that he kept promising to put money into her bank account to the tune of $10,000 a month, but she was purportedly the one who was having to give him money. Now all of this is according to her friends. They said that he would come up with excuse after excuse, similar to some of the things that he is known to have said to Megan when he was courting her that his money is in Canada, his money isn't transferring as easily as he thought it would, and so on. He would ask Jasmine to float him some cash and that he'd pay her back in the future. And it wouldn't take long for Jasmine to come to the same realization that Megan had over the time that she had spent with him on the reality show, that Jenkins wasn't all that he was cracked up to be. And this was something her friends would say, Jasmine wasn't prepared for. She had always had a stronghold in the relationships that she was in. She had her own money, but when it came to the men that she was with, they were the ones spoiling her, showering her with their wealth. And for Jasmine, it came easy, but not with Jenkins. This was the first time that she felt like she had been duped, and this completely stunned her. Jasmine began to realize that she was likely not going to see the money that Jenkins had promised. She began pulling away. She ended up moving into a different apartment in the Los Angeles area, 
but Jenkins ended up following her there not too long afterwards. And she apparently allowed it. From what I've seen and read online, she knew that he wanted her badly. She may have even understood that he lusted after her, possibly to the point of obsession. But her friend said that she liked it. She liked the attention. But at the same time, it was like he was playing some sort of sick game with her because he would bring other women home and make sure he timed things just right so that Jasmine would walk in on him. I am racking my brain trying to think of why he would do something like this. And the only thing that comes to my mind is control, manipulation, and he really didn't love Jasmine the way that a spouse should. I ended up asking Kate, you know her from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast, and she said that he wanted to hurt her. And once she let him move back into her apartment after she had left him for all his lies, he realized that his behavior had no real lasting consequences. Anyway, once that happened, Jasmine decided that she was going to look into having their marriage annulled. It was also around the same time that Jenkins reconnected with Megan, and she said that he didn't look as though he was doing well at all, that he seemed to have lost some weight, and he didn't seem to be the same person anymore, and it had only been a couple of months since she'd seen him. When they talked, he did tell her that he was going to participate in another reality show, this one also on VH1 called I Love Money. And this would be the third season of the show. So it was kind of a spinoff of The Flavor of Love, Charm School, I Love New York, The Rock of Love, Real Chance of Love, For the Love of Ray, Daisy of Love, and Megan Wants a Millionaire. As all the contestants were former contestants on these shows. So the idea was that they were going to try to compete against one another in some mental and physical challenges and try to win a $250,000 prize. Production of the show began in June of 2009, so about three months into their marriage, and filming wrapped in early August of 2009. It's really important to keep these events in perspective because so much stuff happens in such a short amount of time. It actually kind of blows my mind how quickly things happened in this case. So this season of I Love Money with Jenkins was going to air in January of 2010, but it never would. And to this day, VH1 will never disclose the winner of this season Jenkins competed in, but I will talk about this more in a little bit. Jenkins's motivation in doing the show was an effort to win this money and, in turn, to win Jasmine for good. Based on his actions, this is what I've come to surmise. Jasmine was a woman that he could never really have all to himself, unless he can give her the one thing that she seemed to be after in keeping close to those other men. Money. He had already had at least one known instance of physical violence towards her that we know of, 
and she ended up taking him back after that. When he was unable to cough up the money that he had promised her, she again walked away, even talked of an annulment, but ended up letting him back again. Then he brought at least one other woman into the home and purposely set Jasmine up to catch them in bed together. And she continued to stay in the relationship with him. But ultimately, I think Jenkins knew that this just wasn't going to last unless he came up with the money that he knew that she wanted. Therefore, he signed on for season three of I Love Money. Winning that $250,000 would certainly buy more time with Jasmine, and the couple would be comfortable, at least for a little bit. But I want to stop and speculate for a moment about the wealth that Jenkins supposedly had at the start of all this. It had only been since March, three months prior to signing on for I Love Money, that he was on Megan Wants a Millionaire, claiming that he was worth $2.5 million. What was that all about? Where did all that money go, if it was even there to begin with? It doesn't seem like VH1 did that extensive of a background check, as they didn't see that 2007 assault charge that he had been sentenced to probation, anger management, domestic violence classes, and a treatment for sex addiction. So, did they not check his finances either? Maybe he did check out. And then, I thought about it. And maybe they didn't check as much as they should have. Maybe he didn't have as much money as he said he did. Or maybe it wasn't really his money to begin with. Maybe he's living off of daddy's bank account. And that would make some kind of sense based on what we've seen in the past with these kids with wealthy parents. They sometimes indulge their kids. And maybe Ryan Jenkins wasn't a complete disappointment to his father, and maybe he was supportive of his son's attempts to become famous on reality TV, but perhaps only to an extent. His dad did fly down to support his son when he was on the finale of Megan Wants a Millionaire, but it was only days after he was cut from the show that he headed to Vegas, he met Jasmine at a hotel party, and he married her 48 hours later. Now how would Dad feel about that? Would he have been okay with his son getting married on a whim like this to a young woman who could very easily be perceived as being interested only in his wealth? I can only speculate, but... I don't think dad would have approved of this and he may have quickly made some moves to protect his assets which may have meant cutting off the money flow to his son and this might be why suddenly his money was supposedly stuck in Canada or it wasn't transferring and this was really code for my daddy cut me off so now I'm broke yeah I could totally see that. So cut off from dad's money, Jenkins started to become desperate to keep Jasmine as his wife. He resorted to all the things men like him try to do when they are desperately trying to hang on to a woman who is either clearly out of his league or she isn't as interested in him as he is in her. 
He told her a lot of lies. He misrepresented himself. He was physically violent towards her. And then he tried to cause her pain, likely in the way that he felt pain from her overly flirtatious behaviors with other men by setting her up to catch him in bed with another woman. And so this left him with this one last-ditch effort to win the grand prize of $250,000 on I Love Money in order to give Jasmine the one thing that he felt that she wanted more than anything, to be spoiled and pampered by a wealthy man. So in June of 2009, Jenkins left Los Angeles and Jasmine to fly to Mexico for about a month of shooting for the show. But while he was away, Jasmine certainly wasn't going to sit at home twiddling her thumbs like the good wife. At this point, I don't even think she really wanted to be married to Jenkins anymore. But she wasn't exactly shutting the door on him completely either, from what I could see, because, hey, who knows? Maybe he'll show back up with a quarter of a million dollars in the bank, right? Well, I don't know. Because, to be realistic... That's probably not going to last very long. For Jenkins, it would only be a temporary fix. He didn't exactly have any kind of long-term sustained income to keep a woman like Jasmine happy for very long. And I don't even know if he thought that far ahead, or if he even thought that it would be possible. One of her friends said it best, I think, in an interview on television. Jenkins was just never going to be able to have Jasmine the way that he wanted. Even though she married him, it did not seem she ever took him as a husband very seriously at all. And while Jenkins was away in Mexico filming the show, he and Jasmine really weren't speaking as the issues between them regarding both financial and sexual betrayal had put a huge damper on their relationship. Jasmine was spending a great deal of time with an ex-boyfriend who we mentioned earlier named Robert Hasman. I think earlier I called him Hammond, but it's actually Hasman. He was and is a successful businessman who she met in Las Vegas. I did a cursory search of him online, and from what came up in his professional profiles, he seems pretty legit, as he is listed as the CEO of a company called Body and Mind, amongst other business ventures and holdings. So Jasmine was back hanging out with him. And not only that, Jasmine also filed for that annulment while Jenkins was gone as well. Jenkins deluded himself into thinking that he could win Jasmine back with the prize money. But Jasmine likely either didn't care, or she didn't think he would even win, or even if he did, it wouldn't have made much of a difference. She seemed to have finally put her foot down, ready to end this once and for all. But for whatever reasons, eventually, this wasn't going to be once and for all forever. Not yet anyway. In spite of all of the foul things that had gone on between the two of them, for whatever reasons, they were both probably hoping that maybe there was a chance that things might end up working out. I don't know. In the world that they lived in, both of them were very savvy about reimagining themselves and who they were as individuals. They moved and shifted to fit in whatever situation they found themselves in. 
So their feelings for one another seem to ebb and flow back and forth between love or maybe lust and hate. It was just this vicious cycle that neither one of them seemed to be able to let go of. So in late July of 2009, Ryan Jenkins came back to Los Angeles with this renewed proclamation of sincere love and devotion for Jasmine. And he told her that he won the competition and the $250,000 was all for her. Now, smart, head-on straight Jasmine would've, could've, should've sent Jenkins packing. Nothing had gone right. They had both caused irreparable damage to their relationship. And she had spent the entire month in the company of another man who she at one time had wanted to settle down with eventually. But sometimes people aren't thinking with their brains. They're thinking with their hearts. And this new and improved Jenkins, with this little bit of money in his pocket now, had been able to woo Jasmine back with his charms and his promises. Her relationship with Robert Hasman, along with her annulment filings, all pushed aside and it looked as though Jasmine was going to give Jenkins another chance. And she made another drastic change, one that she had never done before, and it was as if it was some kind of sign that she was looking for a new beginning at this point. She went from her signature and natural blonde hair to a dark brunette, and of course, she looked lovely with either shade. Now, I could not find anywhere online where VH1 would confirm that Ryan Jenkins was indeed the winner of season three of I Love Money. Even TMZ wasn't able to confirm whether or not he won. But I will say this. In a show on Investigation Discovery that covered the story, crime author Aphrodite Jones did say in an interview that she had a very credible source that did confirm to her that Jenkins did win the competition and the $250,000 that went along with it. So it would make sense that things would kind of go smooth between the couple, at least for the time being. And something else was about to happen. The premiere of Megan Wants a Millionaire aired on VH1 on August 2nd, 2009. So now, for the first time, Jenkins was actually on TV. He was a bona fide reality TV star now, and both he and Jasmine appeared to be enjoying whatever fame that came along with that, which also didn't hurt his chances with Jasmine, even though it was her husband on a dating competition show. People who had spent time with the couple during this time, in this very small window of time when things were on the upswing, Jenkins and Jasmine appear to be getting along very well. Some saying that the two couldn't keep their hands off each other at social gatherings. On August 9th, Ryan Jenkins took another video of Jasmine dancing around. It looks like it's poolside in a bikini. And he is heard saying, God, I love my life and I love my wife. And then he turns the camera onto himself and says, Luckiest guy in the world right here. By all appearances, they were having the best times they had had 
probably since the time that they had first met. On Thursday, August 13th, 2009, the couple traveled to San Diego for a romantic getaway. They checked in at the exclusive beachfront hotel, La Auberge del Mar. Out of curiosity, I checked the hotel website to see how much a room would cost over the next weekend. And the range was between $450 and $500 a night, not including the resort fees and taxes. So that would be closer to $500 to $600 a night. And I don't know about all of you listening, but to me, that's super pricey. So I'm going to assume that check-in time is around 2 or 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And then Jenkins and Jasmine were seen on surveillance getting into her white Mercedes Benz at 2.30 in the morning on Friday, August 14th, as they left the Hilton in San Diego following a charity poker event. Witnesses also in attendance at this poker tournament would report that the couple were noticeably arguing and she spent a good amount of time on her phone texting. Leaving the Hilton that night would be the last time Jasmine Fiore would be seen alive. So let's go over this timeline as specifically as we can. Much of what were to have gone on next could only be pieced together based on surveillance footage obtained at the Del Mar Hotel where the couple had checked in the day before she was last seen leaving the Hilton. They are seen entering the Del Mar Hotel around 3.30 p.m. on the 13th. The luggage that they had with them is also seen on the surveillance footage. Another camera on the floor that they are staying on shows them getting off the elevator and meeting with a porter who is going to show them to their hotel room. I wanted to point out something that I noticed about this bit of footage, along with the footage of them arriving in the hotel lobby. Here, getting off the elevator, Jenkins quickly exits the elevator as soon as the doors open. But it can clearly be seen that before Jasmine can make her way through the doors, they begin to close and she pauses and either causes the doors to reopen by pushing on the doors manually with her hand or they reopen automatically, sensing the obstruction in the doorway. Either way, Jenkins has already made it out of the elevator and he kind of glances back looking at Jasmine getting shut in the elevator, but then he turns and keeps walking with the porter. And as they walk towards the room, he is continuing to just charge ahead while Jasmine trails behind. The same thing happened in the lobby. She just walks along behind him. This stood out to me because it could be one of two things depending on how you perceive this. Many of us go places with our spouses or our significant others. And I don't know if you listening experience things differently than I do. But when I walk places, and it's not just even with my husband, but also with my daughter or with my friends, we always walk together, next to each other, side by side for the most part. I don't know. I just picture myself walking through a hotel lobby with my husband. And I know he often walks faster than I do. He's got longer legs, but he always walks with me. He does open doors for me, which isn't necessary, but he does it. 
I will hold doors for him too, especially if he's carrying stuff in his hands. But it just bothered me how Jenkins walked off without Jasmine, even leaving the elevator with her in it for the doors to shut. Now, knowing what we know about Jasmine and what she was up to that afternoon and evening, she could have been distracted on her phone, busy texting someone else. Ryan could have been getting annoyed with her, but it just stood out to me. Being this swanky hotel, looking to hopefully give this relationship another go, they both seem really disconnected from one another. And all this, just as they're arriving. I can see him being annoyed at her for possibly being busy on her phone, not paying attention, not keeping up. But... I'd be annoyed if my husband let the elevator doors close on me and just strolled off with the hotel porter. Later on, they are seen on the hallway surveillance leaving their room, dressed up pretty nicely to go to that charity poker tournament. They've got Jasmine's Mercedes from the valet and they drove over to the Hilton. The poker tournament continued past midnight that night, which Jenkins was playing in. But while he was playing, Jasmine was indeed on the phone texting the same man that she had been hanging out with while Jenkins was in Mexico, and he was in Vegas at the time. According to our phone records, she was texting him throughout the evening, telling him that she's done, that she wants to leave, that this is over, and she was asking him to send his jet to pick her up that she was ready to go back to Vegas and to him. So Jenkins and Jasmine are seen on video surveillance at the Hilton getting the car from the valet around 2.30 in the morning. These would be the last known images of Jasmine. They drove off, headed back to their own hotel. And from what the investigation has been able to uncover, things between the couple turned ugly sometime between the Hilton and the Del Mar, and it seems like it happened inside Jasmine's car. Investigators could only speculate, but it's been surmised that Jenkins somehow became aware of the texting that Jasmine had been doing while he was playing poker. Could she have been brazen enough to sit there beside him in the car and continue to text another man right in front of his face? Yeah, maybe she was. It may not have been the most polite thing in the world to be doing at that moment, but the bottom line is that she has the right to do it if she so chooses. At the same time, if she wanted to be with Robert Hasman, she should have declined going on this weekend getaway with Jenkins. I'm just saying that if she was one of my girlfriends, you know. Knowing what we know about their volatile relationship... I would have advised her to just move on. Don't travel with this guy if she wasn't committed to working on their marriage. But Jasmine does what Jasmine does, and she just trusted too much. To me, that feels like her biggest mistake, being too trusting. Even though all the signs were screaming for her to be more discriminating, she was just too trusting. Some of you listening may not agree, and that's fine. You can tell me about it on the discussion page, but I'm just not going to take away from Jasmine 
or anyone who are free to make their own choices, as long as they aren't causing anyone any harm. This is where police believe the argument between Jenkins and Jasmine began to escalate. This argument ignited by uncontrollable rage and jealousy. And investigators believe it happened after they left the Hilton, but before they arrived at the Del Mar, someplace on the road, because Jasmine is never seen alive anywhere on surveillance back at the Del Mar. However, Ryan is. Based on the evidence in the vehicle, including a significant amount of blood and blood spatter and hair, detectives believe Jenkins beat Jasmine in the car very badly, but not to death. So now at this point, Jenkins is in the car with his wife, visibly battered, so he can't possibly traverse the hotel lobby with her in this condition. But it just so happens that their hotel room at the Del Mar seemed to have a private entrance from the outside, like a patio. I don't exactly know the layout of their hotel room, but remember, they did get on and off an elevator when they checked in, so I'm under the impression that this is not a ground floor room, but he was able to, in some capacity, access their room through an entrance from the outside and get her into the hotel without being seen and being able to do so from the outside. There would be blood stains and some of Jasmine's hair found on the outside patio of their hotel room, and to investigators, they've had to guess that she was, for the most part, incapacitated, possibly even unconscious. She couldn't walk, and so he likely carried her to the patio, but he was unable to get into the hotel room through the back door as it was locked. So Jenkins is next seen on video surveillance in the hotel hallway, running very quickly into his hotel room. He's still wearing the suit that he wore to the poker tournament, and it is clear that he is in a hurry and he is alone. Detectives believe he then unlocked the back door and brought Jasmine inside the room. It is believed that she was still alive at this point, and here is how they believe this to be the case. At about 5 a.m., still on this Friday morning of August 14th, Jenkins reappears in the hallway outside of his hotel room. He looks to be wearing maybe some black sweats and a black tank top, and he has something in his hand. It appears to be the receiver of the phone that the hotel room is equipped with. He places it on top of a tall piece of furniture or something in the hallway. So this kind of insinuates that Jasmine is alive and has come to and he was preventing her from making any phone calls. He likely already had control of the cell phones so this was his way of making sure that she wouldn't be contacting anyone anymore. Jenkins then is seen continuing down the hallway, past the range of the camera to get some ice, and then he came back. He would be in the room with her for the next hour and a half. What was going on is anybody's guess. Maybe he was using the ice to try to attend to the wounds that he caused trying to get the swelling to go down. If she was unconscious on the patio, I imagine that she was hurt pretty badly, and there would be blood spatter found inside the Mercedes, which tells me that blood was deposited there 
with a certain level of ferocity. Maybe he was trying to apologize to her, to beg her not to report this, to try and work this out with him. And I'm pretty sure that Jenkins is pooping his pants pretty hard right now. He's probably trying to figure out how he's going to get out of this one. If Jasmine was only kind of done with Jenkins before, she's probably completely done with him now. At least I would hope so. But the reality is, how is Jenkins going to hide what he's done to Jasmine? And how is he going to get her to hide it too? I don't think she would. She had already called the police on him once and had him arrested for shoving her into that swimming pool. But that was a very public spectacle. This was in private. She could have hidden it if she wanted to. Maybe. If he would have been able to convince her of that. But I don't think he could. He took things too far. And that's what investigators tend to think. That he spent this hour and a half trying to talk to her. Trying to figure out what they were going to do. And from what happens next, it does not appear that these talks went well. Jenkins has probably and very quickly spiraled into a full-blown panic. And here he is, standing to lose everything over this. This is where he's at. Not even five months have passed since the day that they said their I do's. And this is what this has escalated to. And he's just not going to let Jasmine leave this room to do what he probably perceives as her ruining his life. So I'm not sure the manner in which he committed his next act of violence, whether he used some sort of implement or if he used his hands, but he strangled Jasmine and he squeezed the life out of her until she would breathe no more. I tried to Google Jasmine's autopsy to see if I could read the details of the injuries that she sustained, if it was determined how she was strangled, as well as the other injuries that he caused when he beat her up in the car. But all of the top results were autopsy photos. I kid you not, I wanted to access the report, but I didn't want to click on any of those links. So if any of you are listening want to, maybe you can fill in some of the details, be my guest, but I didn't want to click. And if you aren't familiar with this story, you will soon see why I don't think it's a wise idea to click on anything that says Jasmine Fiore's autopsy photos. Now that his wife is dead, Jenkins shifts gears into figuring out how to get away with this. And the next part of this is very, very graphic. So for the faint of heart, I would fast forward about 30 seconds now. Jenkins, in an effort to conceal Jasmine's identity, he cut off all of her fingertips and he yanked out all of her teeth. Investigators said it looked as if the fingers were cut off with the same kind of tool that you would use to prune small bushes, 
cutters with two blades, and her teeth were yanked out with pliers. Where he got these tools is anybody's guess. I don't know if he just happened to have them, or if he snuck out the back entrance and went to a 24-hour Walmart and picked these tools up. Seems random to have these things in the car with him ahead of time, though, especially since it was her car. Why would she be carrying tools around? Maybe it's possible, I suppose. But either way, I don't think the killing was a planned part of this trip, as it feels like he killed her in a fit of sudden rage. So I can't imagine that he brought these tools with him to carry out this plot to commit this act. But anyway, Jenkins also removed all of her clothing just to make sure that there was nothing left that could be used to identify her. So he thought. At 6.24 a.m., Jenkins reappeared again on the hallway surveillance cameras and it looked as though he was carrying a bunch of stuff. It isn't clear what he has in his hands, but from the events that are to follow, detectives have speculated that these are the personal effects of either one or both of them and that they were contained in one of their pieces of luggage that they brought with them when they traveled down to San Diego. He brought all of these items out to the car and placed them in there. You see, Jenkins needed to free up some space in the suitcase that had once contained those items that he had in his hands. I don't believe Jenkins is seen returning to the room on the surveillance, but what they speculated happened next is that he returned to the room using the back patio door, and at some point, he placed Jasmine's body inside the now empty piece of luggage. He zipped it up and rolled it out to the car through that same back patio door. Jenkins appears on the hallway surveillance camera for the last time at 9.20 a.m. He is alone. He has no luggage. He has nothing in his hands. And of course, there is no Jasmine. At 9.30 a.m. on Friday, August 14th, Ryan Jenkins drove away from the Del Mar Hotel in Jasmine's Mercedes with her lifeless, mutilated body crumpled up inside that suitcase. If you are familiar with the Southern California freeway system, then you know that in order for Jenkins to get back to their apartment in Los Angeles, the quickest way is to take the 5 freeway headed north. But it is believed that Jenkins got off the freeway someplace desolate along the way because later, the undercarriage of her car would reveal dirt and debris stuck to it. They believe he did this in order to dispose of the parts of Jasmine that he removed in order to impede her identification. So the five freeway, it cuts across California the long way, running north and south, but in a diagonal kind of way, beginning at the international border with Mexico. Then, once you get to Sacramento, the five begins to be more straight up north, and it kind of zigzags through Oregon, and then into Washington. It kind of swings east around Puget Sound, all the way until you reach the international border with Canada. It's a significant route of travel for us here in Southern California 
to get from San Diego County through Orange County into Los Angeles County, then into the valley and beyond. This is the freeway Jenkins traveled with his dead wife in that suitcase. He was headed to Los Angeles to their apartment. But if you know Orange County, you know freeway construction on the five has been a thing for so many years, and it's not even funny. I kid you not. The spot where Jenkins got caught up in horrendous traffic near Buena Park, that section of the five had been undergoing this freeway widening project that took years to complete, and it cost more than $1.6 billion to finish. This construction is not only the reason why I avoided this stretch of the five for a really long time, as well as the adjacent side streets and overpasses, as everything was under construction. It is also the reason why Jenkins was forced off the freeway into the city of Buena Park. And it would be in this town, nestled on the borders of Orange and Los Angeles counties, that Jenkins would choose to leave the remains of his wife. He found an apartment complex. He drove up to a garbage bin on the property. He got out. He grabbed the luggage with Jasmine in it. And he tossed it and her into the trash. Witnesses saw him in a white Mercedes at the dumpster at approximately 3.30 p.m. But nobody who saw this was alarmed by the fact that this man was throwing a suitcase into the trash. I looked it up. Jasmine was left only four miles from where I'm sitting and recording this right now. Jenkins made the rest of the way back to Los Angeles. He is seen on surveillance video footage again shortly after 5 p.m. arriving at his home, but he's walking. He had already abandoned Jasmine's Mercedes. Her car would not be discovered until Wednesday, August 26, 2009, 12 days after her death, parked in the parking lot of a West Hollywood Trader Joe's. I thought it was kind of weird that her car would be left to sit there in a parking lot for that many days without anyone calling it in. My neighborhood is across the street from a Trader Joe's and the shopping center security is likely to have reported the car as abandoned even after one night, as no one parks overnight in Trader Joe's. The article I read also said that the car looked dusty and dirty, it did not have license plates, and it looked out of place. So, I guess it took that many days to figure that out, but okay. Buena Park Police immediately picked up the car and they would eventually find that blood evidence inside that I spoke of earlier that indicated there was a fierce struggle or a fight inside that vehicle. And it also appeared that there had been some hair pulling. While Jenkins is now back at his apartment in Los Angeles, he began texting Jasmine's friends, asking them if they seen or heard from her, that he is getting kind of worried and that it looks like she may have run off again. Which her friends may not have thought was that unusual coming from him, knowing how tumultuous her relationship with Jenkins was. 
But not only was he texting her friends trying to establish his alibi with them, he's also texting his own cell phone from her cell phone with messages that are saying that she's in Santa Barbara, that she isn't going to be home in time for dinner, and that she's probably going to get her nails done. This guy thinks he's so clever, right? He even replies to his own texts from himself, from her phone, from his phone, back to hers, having this conversation between their two phones. On Saturday, August 15th, around 7 p.m., Jenkins filed a missing persons report with the West Hollywood Police Department, telling them that they had attended a poker event in San Diego, and when they got home, she dropped him off and left to run some errands, and she never came back. Then around 9 a.m. the following morning of August 16th, after having spent some time packing some stuff, he left the apartment that he shared with Jasmine for the last time. Jenkins got into his BMW SUV and drove to Las Vegas. What he didn't know was 12 hours before he filed that missing persons report, a person looking for recyclables spotted the suitcase in the dumpster at about 7 a.m. that Saturday morning. This person kind of peered inside and he could clearly see that there was a body and there was blood seeping from the suitcase. He made the 911 call, telling the operator that he found a body inside a suitcase. The operator asked him if he was sure it was a body, and he was like, yeah, I'm sure. The Orange County coroner was not immediately able to identify Jasmine. So when Jenkins had filed that missing persons report, no bells and whistles went off right away. It wasn't until Tuesday, August 18th, that the medical examiner was able to use the serial numbers found on Jasmine's breast implants to make the positive identification. The day before, on Monday, August 17th, police had contacted Jenkins by phone as he had quickly become a person of interest in Jasmine's disappearance. I'm certain her friends had grown concerned when they hadn't heard from her and immediately started pointing their collective fingers at Jenkins. He told the police that he was in Utah and that he needed to go to Canada to deal with some issues pertaining to his immigration status. What he had actually done was drive the SUV to Vegas to pick up a speedboat that he had stored there. He hitched it up and towed it to the state of Washington. On the 18th, I mentioned Jasmine was identified. And then the next day, on Wednesday the 19th, Jenkins called his dad from Birch Bay, Washington, to see if he could find out any information. His dad told him that Jasmine had been found murdered. The Sheriff's Department in Whatcom County, Washington, had received some reports that Jenkins had been seen towing a boat with his BMW in the direction of the Canadian border. Police did find his BMW with a boat trailer, but no boat, at a marina in Blaine, Washington, which is pretty much as close as you can get to the border. The police did say that when they felt the engine of the BMW, it was still warm. At this time, Jenkins was still a person of interest and he had not been charged with any crime, 
but U.S. authorities did alert Canadian authorities to be on the lookout for him. As early as August 19th, the United States Coast Guard, the United States Customs, as well as the Canadian Border Protection were patrolling the waters off the coast of Northwest Washington looking for any sign of Jenkins piloting his boat. The media did begin to report that authorities had become involved in a chase with Jenkins near Point Roberts, Washington. Now, if you aren't familiar with this area, it's worth a look-see. Point Roberts is this peninsula that's pretty much attached to Canadian territory, but it just so happens to jut out over the international border making it officially a part of the state of Washington, though it's not even connected to the state, and it's divided by a large bay. But officials later denied that they were involved in a boat chase with Jenkins. Eventually, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police reported to the media that they believed Jenkins successfully made his way into Canada sometime between August 19th and August 20th, but they don't think he made it by boat as the waters had been heavily patrolled. They're not completely sure how he physically got across the border. They believe that he may have jogged across, and then they believe that he may have had some help from his half-sister, Alina Jenkins. And there is a little information about her involvement available, and I'll get to that in a moment. Jenkins's boat was found abandoned at the marina where his vehicle was found. And that's why investigators were able to determine that he was unable to get into Canada by water. On August 20th, Jenkins was formally charged with Jasmine's murder and a warrant for his arrest was issued. At approximately 6 p.m. on Thursday, August 20th, Jenkins was driven to the Thunderbird Motel in the city of Hope, British Columbia. I read in a couple places that this was kind of a seedy motel, so I went to take a look online to compare the rate of a night stay there to where Jenkins had just stayed days earlier at the Del Mar in San Diego, but I could not get motel rates because now it's called the Thunderbird Project. According to its website, it's a community-based, low-barrier housing initiative developed to support individuals facing challenges with maintaining housing, offering those experiencing chronic or long-term homelessness an opportunity to live in a supportive, inclusive environment. And consideration for residency would not only provide temporary food, clothing, and shelter to the high-risk population, but also take into consideration the social, intellectual, psychological, and physiological needs with the goal being to enhance the overall capacity of residents to move forward in life. So I couldn't compare the two places, but I'm willing to bet it wasn't nearly as swanky as the Del Mar. So Jenkins arrived at the Thunderbird in a silver PT cruiser that had Alberta, Canada license plates. He was in the company of a young woman with blonde hair The manager of the motel noted that they pulled their vehicle next to the trash dumpsters, as opposed to near the motel rooms, which is strange, of course, because you're going to want to unload your car and be close to your room when doing so, usually. So Jenkins remained 
in the PT Cruiser while the woman came in and reserved a room for three nights. She paid with cash, and they were assigned to room two. Later on, a guest who stayed in the room next to them reported that the woman only stayed for about 20 minutes, and then she left. It would later be determined that this blonde woman was indeed Jenkins' half-sister, Alina. The manager later reported that he saw Jenkins walking around outside the motel the following day on Friday, August 21st, but he noted that he did not recognize him from the pictures that were being shown on the news as he appeared markedly different, describing him as looking exhausted. Three days after checking in, when Jenkins failed to check out at the time that he was supposed to leave on Sunday morning, August 23rd, the motel manager and his nephew decided to take a look inside the room. They did notice that there had been no activity from the room throughout the weekend, so they did grow increasingly concerned. They gained access to the room with their key, and they slowly pushed the door open. Immediately inside, they saw Ryan hanging from a belt looped around a closet rung. There was no note left in the room, but... Jenkins did leave a one-page suicide note on his computer, which he entitled Last Will and Testament, and it was dated August 20th, 2009. I really had a hard time finding the contents of this so-called Last Will and Testament, and I'm getting the feeling that Canada is more super secretive about case details than the United States, because I'm pretty sure that if this was found in Washington State instead of Canada, TMZ would have picked up on it. But in it, he vacillated between lots of love and lots of anger and resentment towards Jasmine, feeling betrayed, believing that she was cheating on him. He also apologized to his family for causing them all this trouble. And so, with the suicide of Ryan Jenkins, the investigation into Jasmine Fiore wound down to an end. There was no other person thought to be involved in her death. Police in Buena Park considered this case closed. There might have been only two or maybe three people that believed Ryan Jenkins was innocent. His dad, his mom, and his sister. Though his sister hasn't openly said that, both his mom and his dad have. As a matter of fact, Dad issued a written statement to the media on August 30th, 2009. And he spun a pretty good story, if I do say so myself. This is what he had to say. On Monday, August 17th, I was on a holiday when Ryan called me to tell me that he was driving home to Canada. He sadly recounted that Jasmine had left him again. He said that they had returned from San Diego early Friday evening and she had gone out saying that she needed to run an errand and had not come back. By late Saturday afternoon, he went to the LAPD and reported her missing. Sunday, his mom called. Ryan told her that Jasmine had disappeared again and he was feeling miserable. His mom suggested to him, as any mother would, to pack up and come home to Canada. Ryan finally said okay packed his things in L.A., drove to their Las Vegas apartment, picked up his belongings and his boat, 
and drove northward to Canada. He said that he had reported Jasmine missing since she would usually call her mom or her girlfriends when she disappeared, and this time no one had heard from her. He was genuinely concerned and worried about her. I was concerned and asked what the police department thought about him traveling north. He said that he had been in contact with them and had given them his phone number and his license plate and location. I told him to make sure that he stayed in contact with them, and we both hoped that she would show up in the next few days. On Wednesday morning, I heard the awful news that Jasmine had been found murdered. I started trying to reach Ryan. I got a call from Ryan that afternoon from Birch Bay. I told him that I heard that Jasmine had been found murdered. He was in shock and broke down crying. I assume he panicked and thinking that he might be a suspect, he jumped into his boat and drove to Point Roberts so he could reach Vancouver where much of his family lived. I caught a plane to Vancouver the next morning and I was detained at the airport. The authorities said that they wanted to find Ryan for an illegal entry into Canada. While I was in line at customs, he called me, but I was told to hang up the phone. Cell phones were not allowed. Tragically, that was the last time I heard my son's voice. It is my recollection that Ryan talked briefly with his Vancouver lawyer on Thursday morning and agreed to call him later on Thursday and that he would surrender to the police. With all the media attention, he was probably afraid and never did return his call. If Ryan had done such a thing, would he have filed a missing persons report? Would he have listened to his mom and driven home to Canada? If he was guilty of this crime, would he have casually driven to Las Vegas to collect his things, pull his boat out, and driven slowly north? Would he have talked to his lawyer in Vancouver? I totally believe that my son was innocent of this crime. And I believe that the last three days of his life were spent alone in a motel room watching the media report that he was the brutal killer of his own wife. On television, it was as if he had been tried and convicted. I think, in his loneliness and despair, he simply gave up. So, in the Elder Jenkins statement, a number of things stood out to me. First and foremost, he does seem grief-stricken, as any parent to lose a child would be. And for that, my heart goes out to him, as well as to Ryan Jenkins' mom and the rest of his family who cared deeply for him. Nobody deserves to lose their children before them especially not under these tragic and senseless circumstances. Secondly, it seems as though Dan Jenkins is in full-blown damage control mode, with his main goal to protect the reputation of his family, especially his son, which is also completely understandable. In his brief statement, he managed to paint a narrative that absolves his son of responsibility for Jasmine's death, pointing out that none of his actions were those of a man guilty of killing his own wife, that everything Jenkins did in the days following her death, he did so casually, as though he was only supposedly upset over Jasmine leaving him. I don't doubt that Jenkins wasn't upset. Jasmine was gone, but it was he who caused her to be gone. 
And Dan Jenkins wasn't with his son in his travels from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, ultimately to Canada. So he really can't speak to his state of mind. If he was on a casual road trip back to Canada, or if he was in a panic or whatever. Of course, Jenkins is slowly driving to Canada. He is towing a boat, and he is wanted for questioning in connection to his wife's disappearance. He's not going to want to be drawing attention to himself on the road. He's not going to be speeding or driving frantically. Dan Jenkins also made it sound as though he was the one who broke the news of Jasmine's death to his son, and he reacted shocked and broke down crying, insinuating that the shock was because he didn't know, because he didn't do it. But I don't put it past Ryan Jenkins to be able to feign shock and sadness to his father over the phone. But I don't think that those were the emotions he was feeling on the other end of the line. It was more likely fear and panic now that his handiwork had been uncovered. If he had hopes of Jasmine never being found, that was over. He probably had the thought in his mind that if there was never any body discovered, and if he stayed across the border into Canada, that there would never be enough evidence to be able to extradite him back to the United States, especially due to the fact that California is a death penalty state. Ryan Jenkins could have very easily slipped back into obscurity up in Canada, put this whole five-month-long saga with Jasmine behind him, reinvent himself once again, and pretend like nothing ever happened. But even if Ryan Jenkins was able to do that, if he was able to just stay in Canada, fly under the radar for a while, I really doubt that he would stay that way for very long. I take Jenkins to be a very narcissistic man. Jasmine's murder would slowly fade into the past, and it would not be long before Jenkins would be back looking for the next pretty blonde to have on his arm. And if enough time were to pass, people would probably not even remember that he was the guy that used to be married to that model found dead in a suitcase. Dan Jenkins had been in regular contact with his son as he made his way towards the Canadian border. He knew his son was going to cross somewhere near Vancouver, so he flew there. And I do believe he flew there with intentions of helping his son evade capture. I don't think he went there to help his son turn himself in or try to convince him to do so. But authorities were one step ahead of him. As soon as he touched down in Vancouver, he was detained. This is a very pedestrian fugitive mistake contacting family. They contact family for help, but authorities are surveilling families of fugitives, always. I don't know why Ryan didn't think investigators wouldn't be tracking his father's movements, but like I said, pedestrian mistakes. Dan Jenkins indicated that while he was at the airport, he received a call from his son, but he was told to hang up right away that no phones were allowed in customs. This I don't necessarily believe either. Dan Jenkins likely saw that his son was calling and knew that he was being monitored. He could have likely quickly gotten a message off to his son that he was detained and could no longer help him and also didn't want to risk getting in trouble himself for harboring a fugitive. He had to hang up, whether he was told to or not. Finally, 
Dan Jenkins asked questions in his statement. If Ryan had done such a thing, would he have filed a missing persons report? Would he have listened to his mom and driven home to Canada? If he was guilty of this crime, would he have casually driven to Las Vegas to collect his things, pull his boat out, and driven slowly north? Would he have talked to his lawyer in Vancouver? Well, I have answers for your questions. Yes, he filed a missing persons report as a part of establishing his alibi, along with those text messages that he sent to Jasmine's friends asking if she was with them, as well as the messages that he sent to himself from her phone saying that she wouldn't be coming home for dinner, that she was getting her nails done. The filing of the missing persons report is to deflect interest in him. It portrays him as the concerned party, not the guilty party. He certainly isn't the first one to use this ploy. And yes, he would have listened to his mom and driven home to Canada. He didn't drive to Canada on the advice of his mom. He drove to Canada to evade capture, prosecution, and the death penalty. Yes, he would have driven casually to Las Vegas and slowly to Vancouver. He can't risk getting pulled over and his name popping up as a person of interest in Jasmine's disappearance. Would he have talked to his lawyer? Of course he would. He was finding out what kinds of trouble he was in, what his options were. He was asking questions. And his lawyer probably told him that he needed to turn himself in, but for Jenkins, this was not an option. And again, Jenkins isn't the first criminal to contact a lawyer to ask questions about the kinds of trouble he was in. We saw Jesse James Hollywood do it as well back in episode 59, and he didn't like what his attorney was saying either. So, all the things that Dan Jenkins views as signs of innocence, I view as telltale signs of guilt. And in closing, I want to tell you about the rest of the conversation that I had with Kate, host of the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. I wanted to get her perspective on the nature of the relationship between Jasmine and Ryan Jenkins. I asked her about Jenkins' obsession with Jasmine, how he lusted after her, how he supposedly wanted her so badly, and every time that she wanted to leave the relationship, she would take him back, only to have him hurt her again and again, even going so far as to make sure that she would catch him in bed with another woman. Why would he do this? What's the thinking behind this? If he wanted her so badly, he'd beg for her to take him back, only to turn around and purposely hurt her all over again. Why? Kate's reasoning for this is that Jenkins wanted her to feel the same kinds of pain that he was feeling because he did not believe that she was being faithful to him. That this negative attention from Jasmine to Jenkins was better than no attention. That Jenkins fears that it will be as though he will disappear if he fades from Jasmine's thoughts. So this was his way of keeping her attention on him, even if it was in the worst way. And every time he did something wrong, she always seemed to let him back. So he began to feel as though there were no consequences for his actions, at least none that were lasting. Kate also pointed out that it wasn't Jasmine that Jenkins truly wanted. He wanted the things that she represented, beauty, status, and the attention that he received when she was with him. And the fact that he went so far as to bring another woman around 
to purposely be caught in bed with is a sign that he never really loved or cared for Jasmine as a person. To him, she was an accessory, not a human being. But even when they did break up and she would walk away from him, this deeply hurt him still, even though he mistreated her. Her choice to see other men, even if it were only casually, was still a betrayal to him. Kate considers both of their motivations to want to be with each other as being very shallow. And despite everything that he had done, the physical abuse, the cheating, the lies, she did choose to travel with him to San Diego. Obviously, she did not deserve to have been killed in the manner in which she was. But the relationship up to that point had been mutually abusive, both of them having been thoroughly misguided throughout the entire five-month relationship. I talked to Kate about the fine line between blaming Jasmine for playing with fire one too many times when it came to Jenkins and finally getting burned in the end, and understanding that she made some poor choices. And being as beautiful as she was can often be a lonely place. She could often be perceived as less human and very unattainable. And trying to build a career on that means hiding all of your flaws. And this can lead to many more struggles when trying to work through relationships. But Kate is quick to point out that Jasmine's choices weren't outlandish. She wasn't ever asking for this to happen. That Jasmine was navigating a very complicated life the best way that she knew how. And this brings the 65th episode of California Dreaming to a close. I'd like to thank Kate from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast for giving me some insight into the psychology behind these two. It was definitely a more complex story than I thought when I first started. Please join us on the discussion page on Facebook. I'd love to hear your feedback about this story or any of the other ones that we've covered. You can follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. If you enjoy the show, feel free to leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or on your favorite podcast directory. You can also join pages like True Crime Podcasts, Podcasts We Listen To, or True Crime Collective to discover new listens or to perhaps spread the California love. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently approve upon our current roster of shows, and to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. And I'm very proud to be a part of this network. Please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find links to all of our shows, the merchandise store where you can pick up your California Dreaming t-shirt or your tote bag or any number of items with the California Dreaming logo emblazoned upon it. Our blog is there and if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, it's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, 
sweet dreams. I'm Javier with Pretend Radio, and this season, I'm embedding myself in a cult. Throw him to the ground and get his devils out! Forgive us, Jesus! Forgive us, Jesus! Families will turn on each other. Let me make it really clear. I am Jamie's mother, but what he says is lies. Babies will be ripped away from their parents. It, it's hurtful to see them and know that their lives could have been much different in a, in a home outside of there. We're not letting go of God's will with each other. And the powerful, well, they'll be held accountable. Um, as a district attorney, it's probably better for me not to comment. <laughs> and why is that? Why is that? Survivors are not holding back, and the church is not backing down. Many in the media have tried to get in front of the accused cult leader, Jane Whaley, and have failed. We have asked you to leave. But somehow, I got in. How are you, sir? Yeah, um, I'm here to speak with Jane Whaley. She invited me to service today. Yeah. This season, we're going deeper into the Word of Faith Fellowship than ever before. This story is on a collision course. And it's not going to end well. Why would anybody want to harm him? Sometimes we hurt other people by hurting people they love. Pretend Radio, Season 3, The Prophet. What's the matter with us? We're not going to spark God's 